Hi, I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist. This is the final part of a special three-part series for Mail Plus Health, where I speak to Professor Richard Schilling, President of the British Heart Rhythm Society, Professor of Cardiology and Chairman of Welbeck Heart Health in London. Welcome back, Richard. So the first question we have is, when I went on holiday over Christmas, I noticed my heart rate was very fast. It felt like it was racing. I was drinking quite a bit of alcohol, probably more than usual. Could that be why? It stopped when I got back home. How much should I limit myself to? So alcohol can make your heart rate faster. It can also trigger rhythm problems like atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation used to be called holiday heart syndrome because people went on holiday to Spain, they drank much more than they would normally do and come back in atrial fibrillation. But more often it's just the alcohol making the heart rate a bit faster. There was a very interesting study where they took people who attended the Munich Beer Festival and they breathalyzed them and read their heart rates and they saw a direct correlation between the amount of alcohol that they had and their resting heart rate. The safe level to drink, no one really knows, but the government recommends about 20 to 25 units a week. But my advice is listen to your body. If your body's saying, I don't like this, then I think you you, you cut back because some people are more sensitive to alcohol than others. So coming on from that, I've just been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. I'm 63. I'm devastated. I've always tried to stay healthy and active. I've never smoked and don't really drink alcohol. How could it have happened? Did I do something wrong? So atrial fibrillation is really part of the human condition or indeed part of the mammal condition because it's a common feature design flaw of the mammal heart. So racehorses get a lot of atrial fibrillation. It's a common reason for them to be put out to stud. And you can see my male patients lighting up with delight when I tell them that and their wives looking pretty grumpy about it. But So I would advise the 63 years old, don't put yourself out to stud. It's a problem that's more likely to happen as you get older. It is a problem that's more common in people that drink too much alcohol, are overweight and unfit, which is clearly not the case in this person's situation. But it's just a, a very common problem. The way to think of AF is it's a pain in the ass. It's an annoying, unpleasant problem that has two important things that one needs to consider. The first is uh, in people who have a high uh, risk, uh, they're over the age of 65 or they have other cardiovascular disease, it can be associated with a risk of stroke. It's not the cause of the risk of stroke, it's just a risk factor. And the reason I say it's not the cause is because people go into AF and they think, oh my goodness, I'm at higher risk of stroke at this point. And actually that's not true. You can have the stroke many months after your last episode of AF. So the AS just seems to be a risk marker than, rather than just the direct cause. So in those patients who have a diagnosis of AF and they have other risk factors, then going on stroke prevention medication will mitigate that risk. The second problem is it can cause a high heart rate, and that can be an issue if that high heart rate is constantly faster on average than 110 beats a minute for months or years. So having it for a few days is not going to do any harm, and that's logical because, of course, people run marathons and do all sorts of things where their heart rate is faster than 110. The heart's designed to do that. So slowing the heart rate down will protect you from that issue if your heart's out of rhythm all of the time. And beyond that, atrial fibrillation is all about symptoms. 
And so the treatment is really aimed at getting rid of the symptoms rather than prognosis, because the prognosis with atrial fibrillation, the future outlook is actually very good if you deal with those first two risk factors. And indeed, the risk of AF is so low that the treatments are more dangerous than the condition. So the treatments for rhythm control do not make you more safe. They just make you happier and more symptom free. And that's confusing for some patients when you say that to them. But then if you think about a knee replacement or a hip replacement, people don't have a knee replacement because they're worried about the arthritis that they've seen on x-ray. They have it to get rid of the symptoms from the arthritis. So they'll take the small risk of the knee replacement in order to get their quality of life better, knowing full well the knee replacement is more dangerous than the arthritis. So your 63-year-old doesn't need to worry. It's a pain in the bum. There's lots of treatment options available to them that could get rid of the symptoms if they have them, but there's no reason why they can't carry on life as normal. I had a patient last year climb Everest who's had a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. So life has not come to an end. So really it's about kind of just reducing the risks associated with it rather than actually dealing with it in and of itself. Exactly, yes. My, can I be cheeky and ask a, a medical type question here, which was what, why, and I've, I've always wondered this, why is AF, associated with increased risk of stroke in my head the reason the kind of explanation i've got in my head in af the kind of the, the, the heart isn't beating kind of properly in a coordinated way so it's kind of whooshing all the blood around and the blood in general so it doesn't like being whooshed around and so it makes it more clotty and sort of more yeah. like clot and then yeah. that that clot that's kind of may may form from this kind of whooshed up blood that that's what would then go on and cause a stroke is that true or i made that up in my head so that's that's exactly what we used to think that there's a blind ending alley in the atrium called the appendage which doesn't contract when you're in af and it was thought that that would then allow blood to stagnate within that appendage and form clots which then went away to the brain and cause stroke but we now know um because for example many pacemakers allow us to see every rhythm that everyone has ever um, recorded that we now know from those sorts of systems that uh, AF episodes don't necessarily relate to the episodes of stroke so it's it's clearly not as simple in that as that in some patients that may be the case but in many patients it's not the case and indeed any treatments you use to try and stop the AF have not yet been shown to actually reduce the risk of stroke the only thing that reduces the risk of stroke is going on these very mild anti-clotting medication that stop it so, so do we know why then do we know what it what, what it is about having af that then sometimes months later will then trigger a stroke do we know the mechanism for that we, we we don't really understand it it may be that it's just a marker of risk that you're you've got a sort of cardiovascular a tendency to more blood clotting no one really knows all we do know is that if you take a a stroke prevention medication, your risk goes down pretty much to someone that doesn't have AF. Okay, well on that um, on that topic, then talking about medication, I've been prescribed warfarin, but my friend has been given a different different drug called Pradaxa, which she says is better. What is the difference? Can I ask my GP for it? Because lots of people have heard of the of warfarin, haven't they? Because um, it's, it's kind of famously, it's one of those things where everyone says, "Oh, it's rat poison." So, yeah. so what, what, what actually, what is warfarin? How does it work? 
So warfarin is a, and all of these drugs like Pradaxa and the other, Dabigatran, Rivaroxaban, Edoxaban, there's a number of, of available, Pixaban, better not miss that out, otherwise my sponsors will get annoyed. No, just joking. <laughs> um, so all of these medications, what they do is they make the blood take slightly longer to clot. And um, so with warfarin, for example, you're aiming to have the blood take twice as long to clot as it would do normally. And the reason that that's successful in preventing stroke is it just means that clots are less likely to form in the body and go into the brain. Interestingly, if you compare aspirin to these drugs, um, aspirin works by stopping platelets clumping together, which are another form of clotting in the, uh, there's um, blood cells called platelets that clump together to help seal off clots. And it works in a slightly different way. The bleeding risk for warfarin and these other drugs is exactly the same as it is with aspirin. But because you can buy aspirin over the counter, everyone thinks that aspirin is absolutely fine. And these other drugs are actually more dangerous, which is not, not it, true. Not <laughs> yeah. So when you trial aspirin events, warfarin or aspirin against a pixaban, the bleeding rates were actually no, not significantly different. But the stroke rates were much, much better with these warfarin and other drugs. Now, the annoying thing about warfarin is it's affected by lots of other things because it's metabolized in the body by an enzyme that also metabolizes other things. So if you eat lots of vegetables, they compete with the warfarin and it changes your uh, level of warfarin in the blood. So you have to have a that's check. Oh, isn't it? It's like that's exactly. Yeah. So it's yeah. Kind of that because they little books they used to have to run, probably it's now digital, but back in the day, exactly. yeah. Book needs to come in with that INR, right? Yeah. So you, you have to have your blood checked regularly in order to check that the warfarin dose is right. Whereas these other drugs aren't affected by this enzyme. And so their behavior is much more predictable. And so you don't need a regular blood test to check that they're working. They're also much shorter acting. So if you stop them, they'll usually wear off in about 12 to 24 hours. Now, the advantage of warfarin is you have a regular visit with a healthcare professional. You are reminded that you need to take it. And some people just like interacting with the practice nurse, the anticoagulant nurse, and they enjoy that social interaction and the reminder that they need to keep doing that. The advantage of the other drugs is you don't need that interaction and the, and the um, testing, but that you're much more likely or you're at much greater risk of forgetting to take it and saying, oh, well, is it really doing me any good? And so compliance can be more difficult people may just stop taking it if they if they uh, don't have that regular reminder so there's no real particular difference between all of these different medications really not really there's only one very slight hint that the newer drugs may make you slightly less vulnerable to bleed in the brain than warfarin so in big registries where they've done uh, surveys or collected data from patients now that after it's been released into the uh, commercial um, environment and they've got thousands and thousands of patients, they can see a slight signal that maybe bleeding in the brain is slightly lower with these drugs than it is with warfarin. That's about the only difference. Because that's, that's often one of the confusing things. I remember years ago when I was a medical student getting confused and it, suddenly the penny dropping one day that actually when we talk about stroke, there's two different types of stroke, or we can kind of think about it in two different ways. There's the blood clot one, which is yeah. one of the worried about 
like AF and so on. But then the confusing thing is that actually there's, there, I think it's only about 10%, but some strokes can be caused by a bleed. And then, so can, that's one of the things I think, the, the things like warfarin, there's a concern around that and that it can cause a bleed also caused a, called a stroke. So yeah. you, you might be taking the medication to try and prevent a stroke. It also increased the risk of that other different type of stroke. Yeah, so that's that's right. But the the risks of the two are very much skewed in favour of taking the warfarin. And there was a, a really there's a few really good studies in older people because of course older people are very worried. Well, if I'm falling, am I at greater risk of bleeding or hurting my head? And they predicted that you probably need to fall about a thousand times a day for the risk of the brain hemorrhage to outweigh the benefits that the warfarin brings you. So the risks of even if you're very frail and unstable the risk of taking these anticoagulants is pretty low and much lower than the benefits it brings in terms of preventing you having a clotting stroke. That's so, that's really, really interesting. Because I suppose, you know, when uh, on, on wards and stuff, patients are often quite concerned about this. I think probably they've Googled it and maybe they don't understand it in the context of something like that. And so yeah. they think, oh, but hang on, you're giving me this medication and maybe it's going to also make me bleed and, you know, the concerns around that and so on and so on. But actually what you're saying is, you know, when you weigh up the risks, yes, that is a risk, but it's tiny compared to the risk of having a blood clot um, and how serious that would be. And, and frankly, I'd much rather, most bleeds you can treat by giving a blood transfusion or, or putting your hand over the bleeding side, I'd much rather have a bleed than a stroke personally because a stroke is really hard to treat and sort out. So the next question is, I've got atrial fibrillation and I've been told I'm a high-risk patient. Can I have surgery or will I just have to live with it? I read something in the paper about an operation using a balloon. Yeah, so by high-risk, I think that they most likely mean that they are at high risk of stroke in which case the one single thing that they can do that will mitigate that risk is to take a stroke prevention medication that we were talking about earlier on, either warfarin or one of the other newer anticoagulants. Um, the purpose of the balloon operation, the so-called AF ablation, is to try and get rid of the AF in order to get rid of symptoms. It's never been shown that getting rid of the AF with this gets rid of the risk of stroke. And that may be because of this risk factor dilemma we were talking about earlier on. These balloon operations are phenomenal. So for the last three, four years, I've been doing these procedures as a day case. Uh, they take about an hour to do. And for patients who are suitable for that procedure, i.e. they have symptoms from AF, uh, where it's worth them taking the risk and the downside of the procedure, and B, they're looking after themselves, so it's really important that the patients involved, they lose weight, they keep their alcohol down, then they can often get a very good outcome uh, symptomatically from this one-hour procedure that's done as a day case. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so the final question is, my father-in-law, who is 70, has had fainting episodes for the past two years. When he blacks out, it's usually twice in two hours with little warning, and he's unconscious for 20 to 30 seconds. He broke his jaw in one of these falls, and we're all very concerned. Yeah, so this is a classical story of a patient who has an intermittent slow heartbeat causing them to collapse. And as you get older, the electrical system begins to wear out, and it doesn't wear out suddenly and stop. What happens is it just intermittently fails and makes your heart stop for a few seconds. 
And the classical story is that you suddenly lose consciousness without warning. You're unconscious before you hit the floor, so you don't have the time to put your hands out and protect yourself, so you break your jaw or you break your nose. And then the heart gets going again and everything's fine and you feel completely back to normal. And unless someone thinks about this story and thinks, oh, that is a pretty typical story of the heart intermittently stopping, they don't think to do anything about it because the ECG may look normal when you're not getting symptoms. So in someone of 70 with that story, I wouldn't even bother trying to record what happens during one of these events. I'd recommend a pacemaker because it is such a typical story. And what the pacemaker does, it's a brilliant little stainless steel can with a computer in it and a battery that sits under the skin in the left shoulder and it's connected to the heart by a wire that runs through the vein into the heart and it can use that wire to monitor the heart rhythm and if the heart rhythm ever goes too slowly it just takes over and keeps the heart rate up and it's done under local anesthetic and sedation it's done as a day case it's very low risk and then you've basically got a a safety net to catch you if your heart rate goes too slowly so you're never aware if your heart rate is going too slowly so that sounds exactly what their father-in-law needs that's brilliant thank you so much that's really useful that's all we have time for this week thank you to professor richard Schilling for joining me over the last three weeks if you want more from richard you can find him at londonafcenter.com and onewellbeck.com you can find us on Apple, Spotify and Google. And whilst you're there, please subscribe and leave us a review. Don't forget to sign up for the Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk.